This is episode 554 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. In the first chapter of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, once the wisest man who ever lived, tells us how he really feels about life. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or in our vernacular, all of life is meaningless, useless, pointless, of no real value, and a colossal waste of time. And so is everything a man does or builds while he lives his life on earth. He continues, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? Really? Sounds a bit selfish and narcissistic to me. How does this sound to you? But it gets worse for Solomon by the time we get to chapter 2. In chapter 2, Solomon tries to find his purpose, not in serving the Lord as he did when he was a young man, but in gratifying his flesh in every way imaginable, making all of life about him. And he knew his plan of trying to find the meaning of life in fleshly pleasure would lead to nothing, yet he continued anyway. Why? Why would he continue down a path that only leads to despair? Maybe, as far as Gump said, stupid is as stupid does. You know, sin has an amazing ability to make armchair prophets and theologians of those who are trying to justify their carnality, just like Solomon. This is not the wisdom of God, but the wisdom of man. It's nothing more than justifying the lust of the flesh. And what lesson can we learn from Solomon's life? Simply this, don't be like Solomon. Don't be like Solomon. Be like Christ and leave as fast as you can the lukewarm spiritual life of Laodicea behind. One of the greatest blessings I've received in my life is the fact that um, God speaks to me through his word that I'm able, to, I'm able to see, I don't know how to describe it. Um, it was a gift that he gave me, a, an ability to be able to study, and all of a sudden it starts making sense to me, and then I can follow the flow, and it's all based on like a conversation. I, I view God's word as a conversation between him and me. Well, he is speaking and I am trying to listen. And he's speaking through stories. He's speaking through parables. He's speaking through historical accounts. If it's true that God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that's God-breathed and inspired and profitable for us, then when I open it up, I should expect him to speak to me. If he doesn't speak to me, if he doesn't speak to you, the problem is not him. The problem is usually us. It's kind of like right now, 106.9 is blaring from Black Mountain, and it's, it's out there. I don't hear it. Uh, maybe you don't hear it because we're not tuned into the right frequency, but as soon as I get a, a radio and I turn to the 106.9, doesn't work on 106.7, but 106.9, then all of a sudden, yes, everything is being proclaimed out there, I'm now able to receive. And as long as I stay on that radio station's frequency, I get the blessing. If I'm off that frequency, it's still out there. It's still willing to bless. The table is set. We've been invited to eat, but if I don't show up, I'm still hungry. It works exactly the same way with God's word. That when we tune into him, when we're, we're open and we see it for what it is, not just words on a page, but him communicating to us, then all of a sudden everything changes. Sometimes it changes with just like a command or a principle 
or maybe an historical account, or in Solomon's case, in Ecclesiastes, it's a conversation. It's kind of like, um, like Solomon's a friend of ours. His life is in shambles. He has everything imaginable. I mean, he, he's rich, and, he, and people take care of every one of his needs. And from a fleshly standpoint, he's everything we want to be. I mean, everybody bows down to him. Everybody thinks he's so smart. I mean, we're giving all our taxes to him. We're taking care of him. He's the pride of our nation. And, but inside, he's dead. Inside, he's not happy. Inside, he's in the point that he actually hates his life. He contemplates suicide because there's no meaning in just having every physical desire and lust I have satisfied. And so we're having a conversation with him. Maybe, for those of you who drink coffee, maybe it's Starbucks, you know, sitting there and drinking a $14 cup of Frappy Mappy Frappy or whatever they call it. You know, for me, I'm at Burger King or... Um, Cadobas and hitting the Coke machine a lot. Or maybe it's like a counseling session. Maybe Solomon comes in and he's sitting on my sofa and he's just sharing what's, what's going on in his life and, and what, he, what his turmoil is going through. I don't tell him anything. I mean, I'm not telling him that's wrong or you can't do that or here's what you need to do because I'm not where he's at. All I'm doing is asking questions. Well, so really? I mean, is, is that really how it works, Solomon? And how come you don't find contentment in that? Where did that idea come from? And maybe it's a setting like that. Maybe it's your son or your daughter coming to you and wanting to have a talk and kind of sharing what's going on in their life. And you're listening and you see these fallacies and you begin asking these questions. And when you view it that way, it's like it, it, it comes alive. It just opens up. It's, it's amazing. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, Solomon tells us how he really feels about everything. It's vanity of vanities, verse 2. All is vanity, meaningless, empty, pointless, of no value. Why get up in the morning? Everything is horrible. But how can it be horrible, Solomon? You have the best health care. You've got retirement funds set aside like we can't even imagine. At one time, everybody still thought you were the smartest and wisest person on the planet. And most people still believe that because they don't know what's happened to you. You've got a thousand women to take care of. They're building these pagan temples and altars inside the, the tabernacle and the sanctuary itself, and you don't seem to care. You build aqueducts, and, and you have all these horses and stables and chariots and gold shields. I mean, come on, Solomon. How can all of that be meaningless? It is. It provides me no joy, no purpose in life, nothing. Verse 3 of chapter 1, what profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun. He works real hard. He accumulates everything. He dies. Then somebody else comes and works real hard and accumulates more, and they die. What's the lasting difference here? We've been through chapter 1, and it kind of ended with uh, Solomon being pretty much in despair. Verse 18, it says, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Gosh, it's really hard to get out of bed in the morning. 
what we looked at last week were the first eight verses of chapter two, and it ended with this verse here, that he became great and he had more stuff and more buildings and, and more popularity. He was the greatest influencer. He had more people following him on Facebook and Twitter and whatever it is than anybody else at all. When he said something, then all of a sudden all the news media picked up. He was like the Elon Musk on steroids right now. And from chapter, from verse 9 on, it gets even more depressing. So what I want to do, for those of you who have Bibles, what I want to do is I want to read to you chapter 2. We're going to read the whole thing to take it in context, and I'm going to ask a few questions. We're going to assume that we're having a conversation with Solomon, and we're going to dive into these questions more as we go through this, but I'm just going to ask a couple questions like I would if we were having a counseling session or if we were just friends and you were sharing this with me, and I was going, okay, well, what about this and what about that? And I want you to see how this begins to flow. Here is Solomon doing everything he can to satisfy this nag in his life, the spiritual emptiness in his life, by filling it with temporal pleasure. Sex, uh, food, alcohol, uh, money, entertainment, you name it. And here's his conclusion, verse 2. I said in my heart, come, now I will test you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. But surely this was vanity then why didn't you stop? Why didn't you just quit? If you said in your heart that I want to satisfy this longing by having pleasure of all kind, why did you continue doing it when you realized it was meaningless and it was pointless and it was vanity? I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does that accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guarding my heart, while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold of folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do unto heaven all the days of their lives. And what was your conclusion, Solomon? Well, you'll find out as we read and continue reading, it's meaningless. It's vanity. It means nothing. Well, if you know that, why did you stop? Why don't you just realize that you bet on the wrong horse, cut your losses, and return back to God. No, I have to be about me. I have to live in this narcissistic world. So I'm telling you what I'm going to do. I'm going to satisfy every whim that I have. Verse 4, I made my works great. I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I'm not sharing it with anybody else. I'm not doing this for altruistic reasons. I'm not doing this to please God. I'm doing it to only please me. I made myself gardens and orchards, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. No, you didn't. Other people did for you. I made myself water pools in which to water the growing trees of the grove. I inquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. Not only that, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of the providences. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kinds. That word, musical instruments, it's a difficult word to translate. It can also be translated harems. Oh, something to think about for another day. So I became great. 
and excelled more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. And I was so deceived that I thought that my wisdom was retained with me, but I thought that my wisdom was the same wisdom I had earlier in my life when I wrote the Proverbs, that it was God's wisdom, but it's not. This is what I decided to do. This is what I thought was right. Verse 10, so what was the extent of your gratuitous living? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. Sinful pleasure, non-sinful pleasure, it doesn't matter. I absolutely immersed myself in sensory pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this my pleasure was my reward for my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hand had done, and all the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed it was vanity, a grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then why didn't you stop? Why didn't you return to God? Why didn't you repent of your sins? Why didn't you hear his voice and all of a sudden put their wives into place? No, you can be my wives, but we're not polluting God's temple with these pagan abominations. Why didn't you change if you knew it was pointless and it was fruitless and meant nothing? Well, I'll go in a different direction. Now I'll, I'll start thinking about theological thoughts, philosophical thoughts. Verse 12, then I turned myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can a man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Good for you, Solomon. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Good for you, Solomon. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. What event is that? They all died. The wise man died, the foolish man died. So it's smarter to be a foolish man because I can enjoy more pleasure and it doesn't matter, they all die. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, death, it also happens to me. So why was I more wise than them? If God is going to just forgive all our sins. Then why don't, why do we live a chaste life? Why don't we just party hardy until our deathbed and then ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins? Why was I more wise than they? Verse 15. And then it said in my heart, this is also vanity. Then why didn't you stop? I mean, this is three times, four times now in this chapter, and every time I know this is stupid, I know this is wrong, I know this is sinful, but I don't care. I'm a forge ahead like I am because the cost of changing is too great for me. Verse 16, for there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that is now will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? just like a fool. They all die. Well, you know what? Um, if that's true, I hate life. I hate my life. I hate the lot that I'm in right now. Really, Solomon? You have freedom. You have money. You, you can do anything you want, and you despise of your life. You hate your life because you refuse to repent. Therefore, verse 17, I hated life. Why? What has life done to you to make you hate it? I mean, were you born a cripple? 
Did you, have you lost your eyesight? Are you poor? Do you, have not, do, you, do you have no friends? I mean, Solomon, you're the most blessed person on the planet materially, and yet you hate life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. Oh, I just don't enjoy it anymore. It doesn't cause me pleasure. For all is vanity and a grasping of the wind. Okay, then why are you still living the same life? Why are you still doing the same thing? I mean, if you, you, nobody has to tell you it's vanity. You're admitting it's vanity. You're concluding it's vanity, and you're still forging ahead doing the same thing. I mean, look at all that you've done, Solomon. Look at what you built. Look at the temple here and all these buildings and everything. I mean, you've got it made. Verse 18, then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Why? Because my selfishness now comes out. I've worked so hard to accumulate stuff. I've worked so hard to build my kingdom here. I've worked so hard to lay up for myself treasures on earth and set nothing ahead for treasures in heaven that it bothers me that when I die, I can't take it with me because my life is consumed in the physical and temporal and material, even though I know it's vanity. Verse 18, listen very carefully. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Why? Because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Oh, so you're that addicted to stuff and pleasure and not the higher things like truth and beauty and altruism and righteousness in Christ that, that you, you're, you're going to leave your stuff to somebody else and therefore you hated everything you did because you can't keep it forever. Verse 19, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Well, he's got to be smarter than you, Solomon. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. I mean, if I'm collecting it for me, but now if I've got to leave it to somebody else, I mean, I'm not leaving them anything. I, I want to get this big casket, put all the gold in there with me, and bury it because somehow in my death, I'll feel more satisfied. Um, does Solomon have issues? Immense. Like a lot of the issues that we have today. Spending our life trying to accumulate stuff and leaving the weightier things like truth and justice and righteousness aside. Therefore, verse 20, I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Why? Well, I will tell you. Let me tell you about me. Let me tell you about a man that I know. Now, I'm not like everybody else, Solomon is saying. I'm different. I mean, everybody else is like an animal out there just working to survive. I, of course, have higher motives for the things that I'm building. For verse 21 says, for there is a man, that's me, Solomon is saying, uh, whose labor is with wisdom and knowledge and skill. That's right. What I did was ordained by God, at least in my own mind. Everybody else was working 80 hours a week for, for themselves. But I, of course, used wisdom and knowledge and skill to accumulate, accumulate what I have. Yet, he says, he must leave his heritage. That word means inheritance. I must leave my heritage or my inheritance to a man, what, like your son, 
who has not labored for it. This is also vanity, and watch what he adds, and a great evil. Wow, um, we're having a conversation. Wow, so, um, so you love your stuff and money so much that you're upset because you can't take it all with you. You're horrified that you're going to leave it to somebody, and now you're, you're just beyond the fact of consolation that you're going to leave it to your son, that you not even call it meaningless, but now you call it a great evil to pass on your blessings to your inheritance as an inheritance to those people whom you're supposed to love. How messed up can you be, Solomon? Verse 21 again. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. That's me, he's saying. And yet he, the one who did it right in his own eyes, must leave everything he's done in his life to a man who has not labored for it. His heritage, his inheritance that you give to your children, to your son who have not labored for it. And I find that not only meaningless and pointless and vanity, but I find that a horrific evil. So what you rather do is not leave your kids anything and just bury it in a hole with you? Pretty much. Verse 22. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart in which he has toiled under the sun? Um, All depends. Did you do it for you? Did you do it for somebody else? If you did it for you, then you got nothing because you're going to worry about losing it. You're going to be worried about your investments. You're going to worry about somebody coming in and stealing it. You're going to worry about, you know, where moths destroy and rust corrodes and thieves come in and steal. However, if you're doing this for God and for his kingdom or even for others, then everything that you're doing is for somebody else. They will bless you for that and life will have meaning. So you're asking the question, what for what has man for all his labor, what's the purpose and for the striving of his heart, which he's toiled under the sun. Well, here's how it is for you, Solomon, and for every narcissistic, selfish person who has ever lived. For all his days are sorrowful. Really? Working hard for somebody else? Helping your son do better than you did growing up? Teaching your children not to make the same mistakes you made are sorrowful? Yes, because I want to keep it all myself. For all his days are sorrowful, and his work is burdensome. Even in the night, his heart takes no rest. This is all vanity. I can't even sleep at night and rest because I'm worried about the stock market. I'm worried about what's going to happen with Bitcoin. I'm worried about how much I had invested in this cryptocurrency that collapsed. I'm worried about taxation. I'm worried, 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 because it's all about me. It's all about money. It's all about what I can accumulate. It's all about living my life now. Really? So, um, Solomon, um, what, what do you think is the purpose of life? What do you think brings lasting contentment? What do you think God's will is for your life? Well, based on my sinful life and my selfish life and the fact that I've, I've become an abomination to God because of the things I've let my wives do and I'm refusing to repent of that, let me tell you how I'm able to sleep at night. I've come to the conclusion that this is what God has ordained. Verse 24, listen carefully. Nothing is better for a man 
that he should eat and drink, and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. Nothing is better for a man than living the life I'm living right now. I mean, I'm in a center of God's will. Can't you tell by how much I have purged Israel of sin? And I'm even going to be so foolish as to say this is exactly how God feels. Nothing is better for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. Really? You think that's why God called you? You sound like a prosperity preacher. You sound like someone who says that all God wants to do is have a cattle on a thousand hills and they all belong to me. That what I can do is just speak wealth and it comes to me. I mean, Jesus, of course, the atonement was designed to let me live my best life now. As a matter of fact, since I'm a favorite of God, since God loves me and has blessed me with so much material possessions that he's cursing other people who are having to bring me stuff because everybody wants to be like me who despaired and hated life, who views everything about his life as meaningless and vanity, and who said, if I have to leave a dime to my children who didn't work for it, that that's a great evil. So just like a prosperity preacher trying to deter, you know, convince himself that he is right, he stands up and says, hey, here's how it works. Everybody wants to be like me. As a matter of fact, God has blessed me so much, I have the favor of God that you have to send your seed gifts to me so that somehow you'll get the same blessings I will, that my life is the model of Christianity. My life is exactly why Jesus died, and the way Jesus lives his life and the way I'm living mine are exactly the same. Would you agree? Not at all. But look what he says in the next verse. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment more than I? Well, no one. Then you must be the most blessed person of all. I am. Because look what it says in verse 26. For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight. And I must be that man. But to the sinner... He gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to who, to who is good before God. In other words, to those sinners out there, they have to work menial jobs. They have to work 45 hours a week. They have to barely eat by, and everything that they're working for will come to me because I'm the one that's being blessed by God. So obviously, I have no sin, and those people are sinners, and Solomon knows that's not true. Because he ends this chapter by saying, this is also vanity and a grasping of the wind. Now, have I painted Solomon in a bad light? Or did he paint himself that way? You know, why is the book of Ecclesiastes in the Scripture? Why is Job in the canon of Scripture. Why did God include that book in here? We've got a man who, in Job, we have a man who was the most righteous man on the planet at that time. So much so that when Satan comes up and has his audience with God, God points out Job. He never pointed out Solomon. Pointed out Job. Hey, see the man down there? That man loves me more than anything. Really? Satan says, well, I'll tell you what, he only loves you because you're blessing. Let me, let me attack him. Let me take his stuff away from him, and then he'll curse you. Really think so? No, I know this man's heart. Go ahead and give it a shot, but I don't want you to inflict his body. So all of a sudden, all his material possessions were taken away. Do you remember? And, God, and Job praised God. 
All right, and we're at the chapter 2 right now in Job. And so what happens after that? Satan shows up again. You know, flesh for flesh. The only reason why he hasn't cursed you is because a man will curse you if you give him cancer, if you give him leprosy, if you somehow torment their flesh. You can take his possessions away, but if he's still healthy, he'll hold on to that. Fine, then go do what you want, Satan, but you cannot kill him. There's limits to what God allows Satan to do. And so we find Job sitting in the ash heap of his fortune that God blessed him with. All his children are dead. He's scraping off scabs, covering his body with broken pieces of pottery and slinging the scabs into the fire. His wife just says, curse God and die. I can't believe this is happening. And after many, many chapters at the very end where Job gets bad advice and gets good advice. And there's all these questions he's asking about, why did this happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? I thought God blessed me. How did I end up that way? At the very end, Job came to the conclusion that there's nothing better than to serve God and love him with all your heart. And God honored Job and restored back to him double what he had before. Do you remember? So, in the midst of the worst possible suffering imaginable. Over the centuries, we have Job as an example of how we're supposed to live. Whether your family all dies in a car wreck, whether you're, you're eat up with cancer, whether you're, you're just a vegetable, and no matter how bad it is, we look at Job and realize that faith in God transcends all that, and there's our example, and like 30-something chapters of questions that Job had that we would have too. That's one extreme. So why would we have the book of Ecclesiastes? Because we go to the other extreme. What if your life is like Solomon's? What if you have all the money, millions and millions and millions of dollars every day just pumped into your coffers? What if you can do anything you want? You don't have to be accountable to anyone. There's no restraint in your life. It says in here in chapter 2, verse 10, whatever my eyes desire, I want. I want to do that. I want to buy that. I want to eat that. I want to drink that. I want to, I want to have a relationship with that. I want to drive that. I want to go over there. I want to do whatever I want to do. So much for, I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, sinful pleasure, normal pleasure, God-honoring, doesn't matter. The fact is, I'll do whatever I want to do. So we've got a man over here who's doing everything he can with all the world offers him versus Job over here, and he comes to the same conclusion, but never repents. Never repents. That's the saddest part about this. David committed a great sin. David was confronted by Nathan. David repented. He wrote Psalms talking about how his heart is crying out of repentance for the Lord. Solomon, nothing. Solomon came to the same conclusion philosophically that Job did. Yeah, the best thing in life is to you know, trust God and follow his commands, but he didn't. He didn't. Years passed after Ecclesiastes was written. There was, no, there was no pagan altars taken out of the temple. There was no revival that took place. There was no, here's what God's word says, and this is what we're going to do. There's no proclamation like Nebuchadnezzar did when, he, when uh, his time of testing was over. None of that. So Solomon chose to hold on to the life that he had, and yet God puts his writings in here to show us not to live that way. Make sense? But we do. But we do. 
In Solomon's situation, it was money and pleasure. In our situation, what is pride, arrogance, our own way of seeing things? I want to do what I want to do. I mean, we don't have the money Solomon had. But the fact is, is, you know, I'm only going to do what I want to do. Uh, I come to church, and Karen and I were talking about this um, this week. You know, I come to church, and if I want to sing, I sing. If I don't, I don't, and most people don't. Or if they do, they hardly ever sing. And that's, I don't, I don't want to sing. Oh, so it's all about you. Yeah. Um, I already shared this with you. You know, when I come to church, I really don't particularly want to bring a Bible because, look, I have a verse back here of my 425 slides. This is slide three. It's going to take us a while to get through this. I have this slide back here. I don't want to bring it. Why? I just, I don't, I just don't feel like it. I don't want to bring it. It's, 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 so it's all about you. So when, uh, we, um, when we're commanded to make disciples of all nations and we're divinely powerful by the Holy Spirit who lives within us and we have an opportunity of thanksgiving to share Christ with some lost loved ones, we choose not to. And when we say, why? Well, there's this family. I just don't feel uncomfortable doing that. It's not my gift. So it's all about you. And it's all about us. And we think that this narcissistic end-time mental illness hasn't influenced and infected the church. I don't want to go to this church anymore. I don't like the music. I don't want to go to church anymore. I don't like the preaching. I don't want to go to this church anymore. I want to go somewhere else where I feel more affirmed and music's more to my liking and I can do whatever I want and, and no, nobody confronts me about anything. And, and so it's all about you. It's all about us. It's all about what we want. And we've all grown up in this. And it's getting even worse. And the difference is between Job and Solomon is Solomon understood that. It's all vanity. Everything my life stands for on a permanent basis means nothing. Well, sure, you're a parent. You can raise your kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord, so much so that I find it a great evil if I bless them after I'm dead. Really? What kind of relationship did you have with your kids? I mean, what the depth of your selfishness for a man who has unlimited wealth? I understand being selfish if you have 20 bucks, but this, I I, I don't understand. I, I grieve over the fact that I can't take it all with me, that I have to leave it to somebody who didn't work for it. And so you didn't work for it either, Solomon. <clears throat> it was given to you by virtue of being king. It's shocking, is it not? Amazing. And it gets worse. Solomon has these glimpses of insight. It's like God gives him a little wisdom later on, like, like in chapter 3, where it talks about all the times and seasons. Yes. It talks about God makes everything beautiful in his time. Yes. That's right, Solomon. You're beginning to see it, Solomon. Is it going to change your outlook and change your way of living? No. Not at all. I'm still going to go back and do the things that I used to do, things that I know don't work. As I, as I was going through chapter 2, I was shocked at the thing Solomon is telling us in chapter 2 that he already told us in chapter 1. He already told us in chapter 1 there's no remembrance of anybody who had gone before, and in chapter 2 you say the same thing, and so what, are you having to learn the same lessons over again? We get to chapter 5 and 6, and you're repeating the same thing you learned before. How many times do you have to step in the same hole to realize you need to walk another way? And then I realize I'm just like him. You may be just like him. We know the truth, 
but we refuse to, to do the hard work and change our lives to line up more with him because it's just too difficult. Instead, we'll kind of be just like everybody else, marginally better in our own eyes than we once were, not even close to where Christ wants us to be. And Solomon's self-deluded too. You know, I've decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to test my body with mirth, and I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to do every possible sensory thing you can think of, good and evil, but I, but I know that my wisdom's still with me because obviously what I'm doing is not a sin. How self-deluded can you be, Solomon? So you begin to have a conversation with him as you read the passage, just like I did, and you let the words take you where they will. And you compare them with other scriptures, and you realize that, wow, I don't think I would even like this man if I knew him as a friend. I can't trust him. I mean, I can't even trust this guy to do what's right to his own children. Gets upset and despairs and calls it a great evil that someday my kids are going to get something they didn't pay for. All right, Solomon, then why don't you make this big will, and why don't you give them like 2% of your wealth so they can kind of move on with their life and take the rest of it and give it to charity? I'm not giving it to charity. I want it myself. I want it all right now. I want everything because it's all about me. I want a bigger house, and I want, I want more cars, and I want to have bigger retirement accounts and take better vacations. But even in all of that, I know it's meaningless. It's pointless. It's vanity. So verse 9, we're going to cover maybe two verses today. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Yeah, it's your wisdom, Solomon, your wisdom. It's the, the wisdom of man. It's the wisdom of, of the West. It's the wisdom of America. It's the wisdom that, that is carnal wisdom. It's not the wisdom of God. It's not the wisdom you talked about in Proverbs. As a matter of fact, if I took the, we may do this one day, if I took what you said in Proverbs 15 years earlier before your, your heart was swept away and compared them to what you're advocating here in Ecclesiastes, there's a stark change. It's like, if this is God's word, then how in the world are you saying that what you're doing is wise because it absolutely contradicts what's over here? It's because he has left his first love. He's become a carnal, casual believer, and he's trying to justify everything he does as somehow being part of what God has ordained, like many of us do, justifying our own sin. Well, God wants me to be happy, and if I'm not happy with this wife, but I'm happy with this woman, then I'm going to dump this wife and marry this one, and it's okay biblically because God wants me to be happy. Really? Is that how that works? does for Solomon. does for many of us. So what Solomon says is, since I became greater than everybody else and I found no joy, then I'm going to crank it up to unhindered, unrestrained lust. I'm going to satisfy every single craving of every cell in my body because I'm the only person on the planet that can do that. I don't have to work. I can have anything. I want caviar for breakfast. Ship it into me. Whatever he wants, he can do. And therefore, he does, trying to satisfy this void in his life. Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, whatever I saw that I wanted, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward for my relabor, that I'm able to satisfy my every single 
desires. Let me just show you what this means. Whatever is the word kol. It's the word in the Greek, pas. It means all, everything, completely, without exception. There's no moral construct placed to this. It is good, and it is bad, and it didn't matter to Solomon. All my eyes desired, all they craved, all they lusted for, I didn't keep from them. I gave my eyes everything that they wanted. I mean, if I saw it and I liked it, there was no moral fortitude that told me that that was wrong and and I shouldn't do that or that was evil or like David, that Bathsheba belongs to somebody else's wife. I want it. I'm going to take it. It all belongs to me. Solomon, and what, this is supposed to be godly now? Wisdom of God from the Proverbs. He showed no self-restraint. He didn't discern whether what he wanted was either good or evil. He didn't even care. He became an authority unto himself. He didn't refuse himself anything. He embraced an absolute reckless, unhindered lust like some rock star on tour. And he forgot the truth. The truth. This is Solomon's feelings to satisfy his carnality, but he forgot the truth. The truth in 1 John 2, 16. Do you remember that? Here's what it says. For all that is in the world, whatever all my eyes desired in the world, and there's list three things, the lust of the flesh, which is all Solomon's talking about doing right now, the lust of the eyes, that's in verse number 10, and the pride of life, I am not wrong, I am right, and everything I do as God ordained is not of the Father, but of the world. Solomon, your problem is you think you're living for the Father, but you're living for the world. You're giving to no one. You're, you're, you can't sleep at night because you're worried about the blessings I bestowed upon you and the fact that one of your children will get it and didn't work for it like you did, who hasn't worked at all, and you forget what the Scripture says. I think it's kind of amazing if we, if we looked at that passage I just showed you in context. We're looking at the verse before, that verse and the verse after. This is the truth, and you have to compare it to Solomon's life. First, the command, do not love the world. Okay, I don't. I just love you, God. I, uh, I just, yeah, I'm all about you, nor the things in the world. What things are in the world? Well, the material possessions, money, fame, uh, influence, pride, arrogance, uh, food, alcohol, uh, women, men, whatever, whatever's in the world, whatever belongs to Satan, whatever's part of this fallen economy that we live in. Do not love the world, God says, and do not love the things of the world. Why? Here's the reason God says. For if anyone loves the world, watch this, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you remember me sharing with you that there's always two choices. There's only two doors. There's, always, there's only plan A or plan B. There's no third option. It is either in or out. It is either the wide path or the narrow gate. It is either walking by the Spirit or walking by the flesh. It is either life and death, good fruit and bad fruit. There is no middle ground. And once again, we find that presented here. If you love the world, there is no love of the Father in you. No, no, no. That's, I, I love the world and I love the Father. Can't. 
It's not what it says. Well, yeah, I do. I, I, I love the world, kind of, but I love the Father, kind of, too. So I kind of love the world, and I kind of love the Father, but I love the Father more. So is he satisfied? Is he great on a sliding scale? Never. Never. And that's the hardest thing as a 21st century Christian to understand is God does not grade on a curve. It's always either or. The only time in Scripture we see him grading on a curve is when he talks in the book of Revelation about being hot or cold. He says, I wish that you were hot or cold, one of the extremes, but instead you want to be in the middle. And if you're cold, there's hope for you. If you're hot, then I'm embracing you as my child and I'm pleased with you. But because you're in the middle, making your own rules, doing it the way you want to do, you're lukewarm and it makes me sick. It makes me sick. And the only time he ever talks about in Scripture that I found grading on a curve where we want to live, it makes the Lord nauseous. So I'm not to love the world nor the things in the world. And if I do love the world, like you're doing Solomon, like many of us are doing, the love of the Father is not in him. How can that be? Well, it's, it's really simple. Here's the reason. For all that is in the world, but even the good stuff, like what? Well, like money. Oh, money is a tool for you to help build my kingdom and to take care of your needs. Money's not an end of itself because you accumulate all the money that you want. Uh, Solomon accumulated more than anybody and he wanted it so much he couldn't sleep at night because he was worried about it. And if somebody else get this when I die, it's, it's just a waste. I'm not even going to give it to my child. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And having an accurate view of eternity, the world is passing away, and so is the lust. But here's the promise. But he who does the will of God, and one of the wills of God in this passage is not to love the world, abides, rests, lives, makes his home forever. Forever. I really hope to cover more than this today, but that's as far as we're going to go. I, um, I realized this week that one of the, it's, it's been about a month and a half since I've actually posted um, sermons online. So I started doing that this week and I've got like four ready and I posted one last night. As I was listening to the sermons with ears like you're listening to them, I realized that one of the mistakes that I have made is... I know what I want to present, and sometimes what I want to present outruns what um, you're able to assimilate, what I would be able to assimilate. And I, I find myself rapidly trying to get through it, and I, I can't do that with this. This is, this is too important. It's too life-changing. And so I, uh, I committed to the Lord last night that we're going to take as much time as we need to going through this to make sure that we don't fall in this this hole that Solomon's fallen in, thinking this life is all that matters. You know, we're Americans. Uh, by any other standard of the world, we are rich. Even the poorest of us are rich. We have a home. I think what really, what really challenged me with this was last Sunday when we were sharing things we were thankful for, and Becky read that thing that she had written or, or found somewhere where it talked about all the little things in life that we just take for granted, like waking up in a warm house, waking up 
not living outside, having running water and electricity. And I mean, we even get more blessed than that. We have television and internet and cell phones and all that kind of stuff. A lot of the world isn't like that. And yet we are so consumed with what we have and what we think we deserve and how we don't want other people to take it away from us. And this this is game that we start out when we're young and we have X amount of money. And when we get old, we're supposed to have a whole lot of money because we're all on this game to somehow retire and win big. But that's not the game the Lord placed us on. I mean, over and over again, he simply says, you know, if you'll seek my kingdom first and his righteousness, I'll take care of your needs. I will satisfy your desires and your wants. You know, much of the church today, and by the way, I'm not saying this from personal knowledge about anybody, because I don't handle any of this or know any of this, Vic does, but most of the church today doesn't even tithe. I can't afford to do that. So we're spending God's money, or if we do tithe, we argue about it. Well, is it net or gross? It doesn't matter. Well, it matters to me, because if it's net and I get to tithe less than gross, that means I spend more. Where did that come from? I mean, where did we get to the point where we lost the ability to be a cheerful giver because we think money's everything, holding on to money? I mean, I, I, I'm going bankrupt. Really? Yeah, I've only got like $22,000 in my savings account. I've never had $22,000 in a savings account. Never. I mean, <laughs> where, where does that come from? It's... It's the world, it's what we've been taught, it's what they teach you in business school that filters into and it clouds out the things God wants us to show to show us. Solomon lived that way and he was miserable. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, even though I have everything. There are, there are greater things in life than money and possessions. There are things that... Um, there are things that have permanent and lasting value. I will close with this. Uh, uh, Krista, last Christmas, uh, gave Karen and I something called StoryWorth. And it's pretty neat. Uh, you sign up for it, and each, um, each week you get a question about yourself. And the idea is the fact that you're supposed to fill that out and send it back to them. At the end of a year, they'll put it together in a book, and you have like this memoir that you can give to your kids or stuff of that nature. And um, uh, I got behind, and I've been catching up, and and one of the questions was about what advice, what advice do you have uh, about work, about work? And I really started thinking about it, and uh, many of you may disagree with this, but let me tell you the advice I gave, the advice I, would, I gave my kids, was that, you know, work is something that if you can find something that you would do for free, and yet you get paid for, you're the happiest of all people because you're not really working. You're, you're doing what you would gladly do for free. God places a calling on our life. Most people, when it comes to work, they just get a job. You know, I, I got two jobs here. This one's paying me $26 an hour. That's paying me $27.50 an hour. So I, I'm going to go with that job. Well, what job is that? Well, it's working in a plumbing supply house. Is that what you want to do with your life? Did, did you want to work in a plumbing supply house? I mean, when, when you were in high school and your senior year of high school, and they said, what do you want to do? And is this what? No, but it's the, it's the job that pays the most right now. So I'm, I'm selling my life for a buck to be able to make the most money. And in doing so, then I become like my mother used to always tell me, do you realize how much more money you could make if you were a doctor or a lawyer? Yeah, but I don't want to do that. What I valued in my life, and you may totally disagree, but I valued in my life was freedom. 
Freedom. I wanted to be able to do what the Lord wanted me to do. I want to be able to be there for my kids. I tried to work it out, even when it was unpopular, to be able to do most of my work for home. And a lot of the work that I did, even with the radio station, a lot of the work I did, I did late at night. You know, I would, I'd work, I'd put my eight hours in many times from like five o'clock to two o'clock in the morning, because during the day, I'm really busy doing other things, ministry or family or stuff of that nature. We, we work for the man, do everything we can to try to make money and save to make more money and more money and more money. Our family suffers. Family suffers. Our kids get older, and pretty soon we've lost those years. I didn't go to the Little League ball games. I wasn't there when my kid was, was taking ballet lessons because I had to work. And then we get always to the point, and I've noticed this more as I've reached that stage talking to people, we get to the point where I've sacrificed my family for my job, and now it's time for retirement or getting close to retirement, and now my job is going to take care of me, and they don't. They don't. You end up getting fired. You end up getting laid off. The company gets bought out by some firm, some hedge fund somewhere. They, they replace the old guys and bring in the new guys at half the salary. And it's like, so everything that I did was meaningless. It, it made no lasting impact. It made no lasting impact in my children. I mean, they're not better believers because of all the hours I put working at the plumbing you know, distribution center, which is not a bad thing. It's just... Is that what God wanted me to do? Or was it just a job? If we can rechange our views and realize that biblically, God has called us to be his disciples. He has called us to be his light in darkness. He's allowed us to have a job or career or profession. And he's allowed us to make a little money, a a medium amount of money, or a lot of money because that's what he's chosen to do. And the fact is, if I could quit identifying myself by what I do and identify myself by who I am and who I belong to, then we'll never be like Solomon at the end of our life going, and nothing. I raised my kids, I was too busy working and kind of pawned that off on my wife, and now my kids are out here doing whatever they want to do, and they don't care about Jesus anymore. And You know, I'm just really struggling, and, and I look back at my entire life, and I go, did it mean anything? Was it worth anything? Did it accomplish anything? Was it even a good life? Or is it vanity of vanities, all of vanity? And then maybe I get to the point where I double down and triple down on the fact, no, it had to be a good life because I'm accumulating money and money's important. And now I don't even want to share it with my kids when I'm dead and call that a great evil. No wonder you have a terrible relationship with your children because the number one God in Solomon's life was what he possessed. Can you feel it and see it? It's so apropos for where we live today. So I'm asking you to not adopt my mindset because nobody wants to be me at 67 years old. I'll work until I die. Um, but I would gladly do this for nothing. You know, I did for years because this isn't work to me. Talking to people who are hurting and counseling and helping people with Bible, this isn't work. This is, this is joy versus a guy who just has a job and comes home and complains about his job and spends most of his life in his job. God has something greater planned for all of us if we will just let him be Lord. I'm going to stop here for today, and I hope that you'll see the way Solomon is. I will 
give you a preview and tell you that he comes to some really good conclusions later on in the book, especially in chapter 3, and yet fails to adhere them, which is almost like being convicted in a message, walking out and shaking the pastor's hand and saying, you know what? What you said is true. I'm going to really change my life and then go home and don't. Let's not be those kind of people. Don't be like Solomon. Amen? Let me pray.